how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. Author and screenwriter Jonathan Ames is becoming a television staple, writing comedic television with depth. The New York native first made his presence known as a novelist and essay writer before moving his self-deprecating stories into the realm of television. On his first show, Bored to Death, Jason Schwartzman played a novelist also named Jonathan Ames, who began an unlicensed detective agency alongside friend Ray, played by Zach Galifianakis, and mentor George, played by Ted Danson. The show lasted three seasons on HBO and still has a positive cult following online. In his newest creation, Blunt Talk, Patrick Stewart stars as Walter Blunt. The show follows a British newscaster who recently moved to Los Angeles with an alcoholic, eccentric manservant named Henry. The duo try to navigate show business news and the ins and outs of life behind the scenes of a talk show. Ames also wrote the book You Were Never Really Here, which was just turned into an award-winning drama starring Joaquin Phoenix. We spoke with Jonathan about the unlikely inspiration for his new show, writing about friendships, his rules of screenwriting, and ideas for a film version of Bored to Death. In addition, the print interview for this conversation is available on Creative Screenwriting's website. Oh, thank you, and thank you for wanting to talk. Absolutely. Um, so Seth MacFarlane approached you with this idea to create a show for Patrick Stewart. How did you decide, mm -hmm. decide to revolve this show around a news anchor? Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, I've, um, well, how, how that came about, I got an email, you know, from my agent saying that Seth MacFarlane was, uh, would I want to get on the phone with Seth MacFarlane? And I said, sure. And I said, uh, you know, what's it about? And he, and he said he's talking to writers, looking for them to come up uh, with an idea for Patrick Stewart. And um, so I was like, okay, great. And the night before the phone call, by the same night as the email, um, I happened to be channel surfing, and I saw Piers Morgan on CNN. And... I was sort of taken by his set, that it was this kind of very bright neon blue, at least that's my memory of it. And 
I was just struck. I don't know. I just had in that moment, I imagined Patrick Stewart behind that desk. Um, and I had somewhat, it was a somewhat miscommunicated, but uh, the Larry Sanders show had been brought up. And, um, and I thought, and so I thought, oh, you know, perhaps tonally as a direction, you know what I mean? Just more that Seth wanted to do a smart premium cable comedy. And I guess he had been a big fan of the Larry Sanders show. Mm-hmm. So that kind of, when I saw Piers Morgan, the two things kind of connected. I'm like, well, you know, this could be kind of like a Larry Sanders, you know, instead of a, you know, a late night talk show host, a cable news host, but like the Larry Sanders show, we live behind the scenes. So that's how that came about. It was just kind of luck that I was channel serving CNN and saw Piers Morgan. I could have seen Anderson Cooper. I could have seen anybody. But the fact that I saw an Englishman, mm-hmm. you know, on an American news show is like, okay, this this could happen. And um, and so that was the idea. I pitched the next day to Seth MacFarlane, and he just immediately gravitated towards it. Mm-hmm. Is this typical with how you come up with some of your characters? Um, I don't know if it's how I come up with my characters per se, but um, it, it, it is, you know, how the imagination works is, you know, mysterious, what can trigger things, you know. Um, I know for a lot of what I do um, uh, on Blunt Talk or in my TV work, you know, has been inspired by images I may have seen in films um, and wanting to sort of recreate those images or pay homage to them or recreate the feeling that those images gave to me. Some of them, some of those images are subconscious, like in Bored to Death, I had the Jonathan Ames character hanging from this huge clock on the Williamsburg Bank building. Right. And I don't think that I'd ever seen, oh God, it's not Buster Keaton, it's another one of those great silent comedians. Yeah. Um, Do you know who I'm referring to? I don't Um, know the name, but I know the scene you're talking about. Yeah, and so who knows? I don't know if I'd ever seen that film, or maybe I'd seen some image of it somewhere once, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until like I wrote it and the director said, oh, that's like <laughs> blank. Right. We could put in Buster Keaton. Um, <laughs> I'm blanking on the moment, the famous silent film star. And so then I went and looked at the clip from that old movie, and that did inform somewhat how we shot that. So that particular image may have just been a subconscious image, you know, um, or I may never have seen that film, you know, but, um, yeah, it just, it's, I don't know. I think Jung talked about the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. So there's things that are in the unconscious, then something you, you know, like one time with blunt talk, I happened to be watching this movie with Alec Guinness, the title of which I'm forgetting was on AMC there's something like the peanut butter gang. <laughs> it's again, not the title. And, uh, Alec Guinness was, you know, plays a criminal and he's sort of hiding out, you know, in some shadowy place and decides to do, um, silhouettes with his hands. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Oh, that could be a fun thing for the episode. And it was an episode in which we 
were not to spend as much money, you know, and so I was still looking for fun visuals that I could do cheaply, and so we ended up doing like a whole thing with someone doing, you know, um, is it again? I'm blanking on everything. The pressure of an interview, silhouettes. You know, when you do, you know, your hand, the shadow uh, of your hand against the like wall, shadow puppets. create images. The shadow puppets. Yeah, shadow puppets. So yeah. we got a professional shadow puppet um, creator, and he sort of stood in for Patrick Stewart. And so in the first season of Blunt Talk, you know, we had some very fun shadow puppets. Uh-huh. Anyway, that's a digression for you asking. Is that how? I come up with my characters. I, I don't know how things come up necessarily, but they're usually inspired by other forms of art uh, or other characters and or, you know, certain autobiographical impulses. Mm-hmm. A lot of your characters are, are self-deprecating, but they're very loving towards one another versus most mainstream television, which is kind of, they're all mocking one another as the comedy. Mm-hmm. What what advice do you have for creating uplifting comedy? Well, um, yeah, I mean, th- this is something that people have noted with my two shows, and, and I'm glad they have. It, it was not something, I guess it was something I was aware of consciously from the beginning on Board to Death, Um which was my first big foray into writing lots of scripts and obviously having a television show. And I had to hire writers and all the sample scripts I was sent, the character, all the characters were incredibly unkind to each other. And, and as you say, mocking and, and yet supposedly they were friends and Mm -hmm. I hadn't watched a lot of TV myself. So I don't, and I still don't, so I don't necessarily know what's out there, but I kind of got a glimpse of what's out there by reading these scripts. And so I kind of, I told the writers that I hired that first season that um, I didn't want that kind of humor, that I, I didn't enjoy it. I, I didn't find it funny. I just mm-hmm. thought it was mean, and it didn't seem like how human beings are with each other, or maybe I have an idealistic notion. I just, my friends and I might give each other a hard time or tease each other, but not on the level of derision and mocking that I was reading in most of these scripts, you know? So um, that just kind of became an ethos that I kind of kept going in, uh, that I, you know, started with Bored to Death and continued with Blunt Talk, just that the characters could give each other a hard time, but really I... I didn't want it to be about them being hateful towards each other because how could we believe that they cared for each other? So I think just by starting from that premise, if you know, that, that, you know, maybe it should be how people are with their own friends. Are they that mean to each other? I don't know. Maybe if they are, then, then that is the kind of scripts they should write, you know, Mm -hmm. but so, but I, I ultimately, I guess it's, I do have this feeling of, with the comedies I write that I want people to sort of feel good at the end of an episode. And when, you know, you watch something and the characters are sort of being mocked the whole time and they're mocking each other. I don't know that you necessarily feel good afterwards. You know what I mean? You feel a little bit like you've just been indulging and maybe feeling superior to these people. Mm -hmm. Um, So, 
Can you talk a little more about the relationship on the show between um, Walter and Harry? They have a, a very strong connection. Your more to death was similar between the characters. Can you just talk a little bit more about how you write um, that kind of you know friendship on a television show? Yeah. What did you say? Similar to what? I didn't hear that one thing. Um, so, so the kind of the same love on your characters of bored to death. If they would almost do anything mm. for each other. Yeah. Um, well, the Henry and uh, uh, sorry, the the Walter and Harry relationship that began as an homage for me to the sort of master valet relationship that I had enjoyed in the novels of P.G. Woodhouse. Mm-hmm. And and specifically the Jeeves books, and I had written a whole novel which was kind of a, you know, an homage to P.G. Woodhouse, and even had a character named Jeeves. And so, as I was conceiving one talk, I kind of recreated that dynamic again because it was a dynamic I enjoyed writing, um, and so, you know, I don't know how to say how to write such a friendship, but, you know, in some ways they're sort of ego and id and, but they, you know, in some ways they could be the two voices that are in one's own head, you know, right. are, are, are crazy thoughts. And then, and then the voice that, you know, uh, counsels us in our own head, you, you know what I mean? Um, so in some way, but then it switches sometimes especially in this season, um, you know, Harry loses it a little, and Walter has to come to his aid. Um, I guess it's, yeah, I mean, it's idealized caring, but I don't even know if it's idealized. I mean, my friends can be very good to me, and I I can try to be very good to my friends. Of course, I've fallen short so much in life and have hurt people, you know, with, you know, as this election shows us, <laughs> nobody's perfect, right? I don't know. I don't want to go there. So. Um, some of your work has been, well, I guess, the, especially the two television shows are somewhat outlandish. Is there any room for improv on these series? Um, definitely. Um, I mean, we're very, uh, we, we, both series are very scripted, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I generally have worked with actors that like to, Stick with the script, um, but <clears throat> within that, you know, like during rehearsals, you know, you well, the rehearsal is in television. You don't really get a chance to rehearse, but you know, when we're doing the first read and the camera isn't rolling, sometimes they'll fool around and and say the line in a different way or in a funny way, or there'll be a prop on set, or they just. You know, you know, something comes to them and they throw that in there, and I say, "Oh, I love that. Do that again." You, you know, so it's not like, you know, verboten not to. So there's definitely room for improvisation. And with Zach Galifianakis, more than anybody, um, we would try to have like at least one take, you know, where he could fool around and improvise. Um, <laughs> The thing with television is you only have a certain amount of time, you know, and things have to move quickly. And 
in improvisation, because they haven't been scripted, and when you write a script, you're, you're thinking of time. Like, okay, one page, one minute, you know. Yeah. Right. And, and, and improvisation can sometimes take too long to stay off, you know. But we definitely find little moments and little things. And, um, yeah, so there's room for improvisation. But I think more than other shows, we, we, we really stick to the script. Like, I've heard... Um, you know, like on, an actor on Transparent told me sometimes they start with the scene and then they're like, you know what, just kind of improvise it. Maybe, you know, keeping the gist of it, you know, and then they mm-hmm. play it that way. Um, but it's, it's, that's not been how I've worked. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for changing your, your mindset between writing books versus writing television or, or movies? Well, yeah, I mean, I made that transition years ago. I I now write scripts more than I write prose. I want to get back to prose. I mean, um, scripts are very much a form. It's not not as controlled as, like, certain poetic forms where you have to have a number of syllables and all that. But, you know, it's it's very much a blueprint for a lot of people to read the people that are going to pay for things, the, you know, the, um, then the production designer wardrobe, you know, all these things have to sort of be in there as a guide for everyone. And then of course the actors, the, the, the writing, the real writing or the fun writing is in the dialogue. Um, but even there, you, you don't have as much flexibility as when you write prose. You know, um, in in prose, maybe you could have someone give a really big, long speech and it seems believable or you, it feels like dialogue that you, you know, will suspend your disbelief. But in a TV show, generally speaking, you can't have people give great, huge, long monologues. It'll get boring. It's difficult for the actor. You kind of have to keep it moving. Scenes can't be too long again for the same reason. The pacing will slow down. So there's, I think there's just a lot more rules I find with screenwriting or at least writing episodic comedic television, you know, which is about a 30 page script. Writing movies, I've not, I've written a few. I think that's an even harder form to somehow both keep something moving and, um, and yet give it breathing space. I don't know. The movie is, you know, the 100-page script, I think, is a real difficult form. I, I find the 30-minute TV script, I've, 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 I have more success with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a lot of little personal rules for screenwriting, which I probably wouldn't have, or which I didn't have writing prose. Um, like I said, I, I try never to have a scene in my half hour comedies be longer than two pages uh, unless I have multiple characters coming in and out and really changing up things quite a lot, you know, right. Uh, I, I try not to have characters speak for more than, you know, four final draft dialogue lines because that tends to drag on, you know, of course you, you can, there's no hard and fast rule. You know, sometimes I do have people give longer monologues, but that's somewhat rare. Um, I try to keep all the description to a minimum, you know, keep it very tight writing, but to the point and very clear, 
because if it goes on too long, you're using up page count time. And then also the people that have to approve your scripts are going to get bored. You know, that's the other thing. You're writing to get approval from all these other people. So you, you want to write... You want to write scripts that are entertaining to read. Mm-hmm. So I have certain little rules like that that I don't apply to uh, prose. Is there anything about your overall style or writing method that has changed, like an idea that you thought 10 years ago that you don't believe anymore? Um, I don't think so. I mean... I think, you know, my method is the same, you know, you, um, you know, there's a lot of procrastination and then you finally sit down and I, I, yeah, I can't think of anything. I think some basic principles, like I always, you know, I used to teach a lot of writing. Um, you always set a reasonable goal, you know, all right, I'm going to get five pages done today. Now, a lot of times I'm on the deadline for a TV show, but I usually set it up where Sometimes I had to write a script over a weekend, mm-hmm. but I would have some of it done. But I, I wouldn't think like, all right, I'm going to write the whole script in one day. You know, right. you, you just, you you know, if you, you set a goal. And so usually my goal would be like five pages in a day is a really good amount to have achieved. Mm-hmm. But there have been days, you know, because of pressure to get scripts done. I think one day I wrote. You know, maybe, and it doesn't sound so Herculean, but at least 18 pages of a script of uh, one talk I wrote in one day. Um, but, and, but the thing is, because you're under deadline, those pages have to work. So it's not like they could be shitty pages, you know? Correct. Um, so, um, but, you know, setting reasonable goals. Um, you know, I, I still carry a little pad where I write down ideas or notes. And a lot of times it's good to look at things like that before you start writing so that you don't feel you have totally a blank page. You know, like, oh, yeah, that thing. Let me try to work that in somewhere. Right. So, yeah, I can't say that my uh, my philosophies have changed that much in the last 10 years. Okay. I've just got uh, one or two more for you here. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share about Blunt Talk? Uh, anything I'd like to say about Blunt Talk or any yeah, questions yeah, you might have? Or... Right, anything we haven't discussed already that you'd like to share about the, the new show? Um, well, let's see. I mean, I, there are a lot of, I know this is for screenwriting, so there are lots of cinematic illusions in this season of Blunt Talk. Um, I can't remember them all now, but like in the first episode, we kind of allude to the end of Dr. Shivago when a character's on a bus and spots a long lost love out the window. Um, and then when he's in the lights uh, in front of the museum here in LA, I kind of wanted a little bit of a Hitchcock feeling. Um, in a later episode, we make reference to this French film I always loved called Beau Travail in which a character sort of madly dances at the end of the film. And so I kind of wanted a mad dance. And so I, I make lots of different allusions to, to things I've enjoyed. Um, so I think that's an interesting aspect of Blunt Talk. And, you know, and that every episode, I, you know, I try to come up with a beautiful image, uh, something arresting visually 
for the audience, along with the comedy and the dialogue that I do like to, you know, since it is a visual medium, to try to have cinematic moments. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read that you're a bit of an avid reader and a book collector. What books would you most recommend for storytellers to read? Uh, well, geez, I don't know for storytellers. I mean, per se, I mean, I could, I, I, for the last few, well, I don't know, almost a decade now, maybe I mostly read genre fiction mysteries, maybe because that is all about storytelling. Like I've come to love the page turner as Mm -hmm. opposed to maybe the more literary novel, which didn't compel me to turn the page in quite the same way like and so mysteries could you know kind of good for learning of the basic storytelling principle is what happens next you know like we want you always want the viewer to wonder what happens next um and and to sort of be pushing them forward so i don't know people might enjoy giving mysteries a chance for wanting maybe to put some of that page-turning quality into their scripts or into their prose writing. Uh, it's some rumors online that you've written a few drafts of a bored-to-death movie but found like something was missing. Are there any updates to this or any um, possible details on plot you could provide? Well, um, yeah, I did write two drafts. I don't know. I, I maybe. I guess they weren't working. I I maybe I may have given up on them too soon. Um, I you know maybe it wasn't one of them wasn't working so well for uh, the HBO executives. So then I did another draft, and and then I got so busy with Blunt Talk that I kind of had to let it drop. And so I think of revisiting it. I have Jason in. Uh, Blunt Talk. I also have Ted's wife, Mary Steenburgen, and we're all still very close. Zach has said, Zach Galifianakis has said he would do a movie. Mm-hmm. So I guess the one thing, you know, to maybe give something away, which I haven't before, is I've kind of thought of if I did do a sequel that maybe, uh, maybe rep- representing my own life, I would have the Jonathan character living in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. which would really return him to his Philip Marlowe roots, you know, which is where Bored to Death began, was with his fascination for Raymond Chandler. Mm-hmm. So that's one thought I, I had, because also the Brooklyn that was so important to what I was doing at the time, it's kind of slipped away from me. I don't, I'm not, you know, I, I was sort of capturing probably the tail end of the commercialization or the, the new discovery of Brooklyn, now it's completely exploited and, you know, has <laughs> right. overtaken Manhattan. It's kind of the, you know, at least the artistic, for the young people, cultural center. But anyway, so that's one thought is return the Jonathan character to his Philip Marlowe roots. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter. We also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. 
In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.